Hi, everyone. Welcome to the podcast. Where can you get the best medical information anytime and anywhere? Right here on The Smartest Doctor in the Room. Please note, though, that this show is for educational purposes only and does not provide any personal medical advice. You know, all of us know someone with an autoimmune disease, and if not that, for sure, someone that has allergies or asthma. And ironically, before World War II, these conditions were a lot less common. So we all probably wonder, what has changed? Today, you turn on the TV and commercial after commercial is promoting a new drug for an autoimmune disease like colitis or arthritis. Or of course, you see that person walking through a, a garden uh, with all the pollen and they're sneezing and it's the, you know, an advertisement for an antihistamine. And how about today, almost every school has peanut-free zones for children with dangerous food allergies. But what's going on here? Well, my guest today, Moises Velasquez-Manoff, he's not a doctor, but he is an outstanding science writer who tackles the difficult but important topic of why autoimmune diseases and alert allergies are so common today. His book, An Epidemic of Absence, I've had now for over a decade. It's really like a little bit of a Bible for me. And uh, the subtitle, A New Way of Understanding Allergies and Autoimmune Diseases, uh, I think is very apropos. And he really puts together probably some of the best literature and research on the subject that leads us to a confusing idea that in some way, modern living has predisposed all of us to diseases that are rare in developing countries and even in our own past. And I really believe his writings have made me question as a doctor, how I approach my patients. So I'm just really super excited to welcome Moises Velasquez-Manoff to the podcast. Happy to be here. Thanks for, for inviting me. Okay, so Moises, your writing is really good. I, I, you know, I really appreciate good writing, and it's extremely technical as well. Uh, it's almost like you're an immunologist with your depth of understanding. So I guess my question, because I always like to ask background questions, why did you decide to become a science writer uh, and maybe not even a doctor or something in the healthcare field? Because you clearly grasp things very well. Uh, yeah, that's a good question. Um, I kind of, in retrospect, wish that I did become a doctor. Uh, but I think I'm a little bit too old to go back to medical school now. Um, but uh, I was in, uh, I went to journalism school uh, in the, uh, I guess it would be the mid aughts. And I think I was, I was heading towards being like a, a sort of humanities kind of writer, like doing cultural criticism stuff and stuff like that. Um, but uh, somewhere along the way, I think I had some interactions with some local politicians and I was just thinking like, God, these people are just lying to my face. I don't want to have to deal with this all the time. And so I'm a curious person. I'm, I'm interested in how things work. So I sort of switched to science. I, you know, it's not that that scientists are always truthful or, or but at least that's sort of the idea when you deal with scientists, um, that they're in pursuit of something that can be replicatable by other people. Right. Yeah, we're searching and if for, yeah, we're searching for truths, honestly. I mean, yeah. that's not always the case. But but just out of curiosity too, I mean I mean, I I did a lot of training, obviously, through medical school and in my 
my fellowship was in actually allergy immunology. Uh, so, I mean, again, was it just from reading article after article, learning the essentially the lingo? I mean, there's just a lot of stuff in there, you know, that you're writing, yeah. which clearly no, I, you I, grasp. I have no formal background in it. I just, wow. uh, it's just from wow. reading. Wow, that's awesome. I mean, I, you know, I'm, I'm motivated because I myself suffer from some of these conditions. So when I came right. across some of these explanations, I really wanted to understand what they were saying. Yeah. I want to ask you about that too, you know, because again, your, your opening chapter really, a couple of things for my listeners, you really want to read this book if you have any, any of these conditions, because you, you grab the reader right away. And you mentioned your own battle with autoimmune disease, with alopecia and, and suffering with allergies. Is there any advice you could give to a young person suffering with these type of illnesses today, to coping wise, or um, you know how to handle it? You know, looking in retrospect. Um, well, you know, so alopecia is a hair loss condition. It's uh, autoimmune hair loss condition. It's what now now it's been made famous by Jada Pinkett Smith and right. the, the the slap at the Oscars. So my advice is don't go slap people. Uh, don't go slap okay. Chris Rock at the <laughs> But um. Uh, in terms of, you know, I mean, it, alopecia is uh, it is a very visible version of an autoimmune disease, um, so it can be very difficult for those reasons. Um, I, I don't, you know, it's hard to go through. What can I say for kids? Uh, but you, you can get through it. You will survive. Mm -hmm. And um, I, mm -hmm. I guess, it, broadly speaking, when you get a chronic illness, you are always wondering why me? What is wrong with me? Right. And the answer that the that my research I've sort of dug up through my research and that my book provides is that if there's nothing wrong with you. You are just you have been you have evolved for an environment that is very different than the one your environment than than the one that your body encounters, your immune system encounters today. Yeah. So the 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 question is one of a mismatch between your genome and the environment and there actually is nothing wrong with you and you might have actually been superior in certain ways in other environments you know mm. having like little aspects of your immune function that were basically turned all the way cranked all the way to high um so you know that's it's not very great consolation but it, it actually for me was a little bit soothing to realize that you know right you know, um, as I mentioned, I strongly recommend our listeners to read the book because it's, it's so excellent. Um, you know, one of the overarching themes in the book, and maybe where we could start this discussion, is that essentially modern living clearly predisposes us to these diseases because there's been such an increase in them over the last <clears throat> several decades, as you point out in the book, and where it's still considerably lower in underdeveloped countries. My question to you is, and I'm sure all the listeners are thinking, well, what do I do You know, when they hear that maybe our modern environment is too clean, too sterile, maybe too many chemicals, we'll go into that. You know, what do they do? I mean, they, uh, you know, again, we've always got so um, accustomed to and rely on modern conveniences of living. So, I mean, nobody really wants to ride a horse to work or, you know, go for an outhouse, you know, the latrine outside, you know, yeah. as beneficial as that might be. I don't see anybody going backwards, you know, or not taking a shower every day. So I don't know what's, what's just, we're going to get into more depth. What's your sort of your general thoughts on, I mean, it, do you think is sort of a, a way to balance all of this? Well, I wish, I wish there was something I could say to that question. Um, the problem is science has not yet worked out exactly how we can replace 
these these stimuli that yeah. before sort of helped our immune system develop in a way that did not lead to these conditions to allergies and autoimmune disease we still like basically ideally what it would be would be a pill a mix of microbes right that you would take starting from very early in life that would train your immune system basically educate your immune system um in a way that you would never have you would never wheeze you would never have hay fever you never have autoimmune disease right. have to it would have to start very early in life because right. that is when the immune system is getting trained like within the first yeah. year of life and possibly even before you're born yeah like, like with your mother Right. Well, We're going to get to a lot own. of these things. You know, you what you just delivered there is going to, you know, so th that's going to be the teaser because later on, we're going to really circle back to what you just said, uh, because I think they have profound consequences for medicine in the future. So, okay. We'll but move I, I on. just want to highlight, we don't know what that pill, what, no, what's I know. that pill yet, right? No, but I know. There, that's, that's the mystery and that's what, yeah. but well, hopefully the scientific community, we're going to talk about this too, is going in that direction because- you know, pharma, the pharmaceutical companies and everybody has their own agenda. And exactly what you're saying to me is the holy grail, honestly. Yeah. You know, I, you know, I mean, I guess I'll throw it out now. What I say to patients all the time in my office, you know, because I do a lot of um, holistic medicine, but I'm, my background's in immunology, and I feel like these two areas are merging. And I always like to tell my patients is I could foresee sometime in the future, I hopefully in my lifetime still, you know, I got a, hopefully another decade or so of practicing, that one day a patient's going to come to me and since I'm very reluctant to give antibiotics, but I'll know the exact, quote, probiotic that they should be yeah. taking to rebalance their microbiome, their gut, so that, you know, they are they stay healthy. Uh, but this, you know, let's move on to, because I want to ask you about, because one of the great parts in your book also is a chapter, which you titled Missing uh, Old Friends. And it really contrasts, in some sense, to the hygiene hypothesis. Now, just to do a little shameless self-promotion, about six years before your book in 2006, I published my book, Dr. Dean's <laughs> Allergy and Asthma yeah. Solution. And it's funny, I wrote this book at the time because I, I did and I still do sublingual allergy drops to desensitize patients to environmental allergies. And it's really quite successful and the research backs it up. I've actually now been starting to do it for food allergies, those dangerous food allergies like the peanut and tree nuts. It works quite safely. And... I had a chapter in here, my second chapter, about why allergies are so prevalent. And I do a, a more cursory uh, uh, chapter than your book on, you know, a lot of the factors at the time in 2006 that we were wondering why are allergies so prevalent, especially all these food allergies. And there was something called, as you know, the hygiene hypothesis that essentially, you know, what is the difference in, you know, these Western modern area, you know, societies that we have cleaner households and there's medical interventions like vaccinations and of course antibiotics, which I want to get into. And, but at the time it wasn't really clear what was, the, what, you know, did this hypothesis hold up? And was it really the fact that we were in a cleaner environment? And as they say in your book, an epidemic of absence, which the title tells it all, but I didn't even get it until I read it the second time, that it's what's missing, maybe just as important as what's still there. Um, and you point out some really important studies. I mean, this, the studies that you point out in that in your book, especially in that chapter on missing old friends, is like the the gold standard that I honestly like every allergist, immunologist, rheumatologist should read. Otherwise, they shouldn't get their certificate because it really outlines things. So I wanted to ask you of some of the studies, you know, um, the East German versus the West German, you know, um, 
uh, country differences, uh, you know, or the Fernando Martinez work on early childhood stuff, which are the ones that really, I mean, after writing about it and studying, really impressed you? Like this, you know, this is like hands down, you know, true. Yeah. Well, it's it's the stuff on farms in, in Central mm-hmm. Europe, I think, is because they just kept studying it and replicating it, finding in different farms, different countries, um, looking at looking at it in different angles. So like in the, the first observation is just simply that kids who grow up on farms with animals, that being a key point, um, are much less likely to have allergic disease than kids in the same rural areas. Not kids in the city, but kids are also in the same rural areas who aren't on farms. Like like one third less, if I'm remembering correctly, one half to one third. Um, So starting from that basic uh, observation, which I think was made in the 90s, actually, they just continued and they started looking at like, well, what is their... What is the uh, profile of their sort of white blood cells? It turns out it's different. Like there's all sorts of expression of various receptors that are different. And they have a different sort of balance of different kinds of white blood cells. So it, it, it moves way beyond just um, a sort of observation, which you can't, of course, assume any kind of causal causation when you just when there's a correlation between two you know that kids who are on farms have less allergy. Could be very well that kids who have less allergy tend to, to move to farms. Right. Mm. That makes more sense in a lot of ways. Um, but they're able to take it to an animal uh, model where they can actually reproduce this effect using microbes from the cow shed. Right. The cow shed is where they keep these. Um, uh, they, they keep their cows and milk them and they have the fermented feed and stuff. And it turns out to be a super microbially enriched environment. So, so took- I, yeah, I think what you were saying in the book, which, again, to me, was so important, it clearly. Um, the inhalation exposure is yes. really important. I mean, what what these young people, you know, the the families are inhaling, which, you know, a lot of times you think would be, I mean, those are, quote, the classic allergies. Hey, you know, uh, grass, uh, animal dander itself. I mean, we know in my practice, the part that I do allergy, I mean, these are what people are coming in. They're suffering terribly in New York and Long Island, you know, where I practice. Um, but yet, you're, you know, what you're saying in the studies back this up, that growing up, in this environment, you know, seems to, um, you know, be protective. Right. And And so the key thing though, is that you were getting this stimulation from the barnyard microbes Mm -hmm. at the same time that you're being exposed to allergens. Right. Mm -hmm. And so, so like you're getting Mm -hmm. the house dust mite, you're getting the hay, you're getting the pollen, you're getting all these horrible allergens that normally people would, you know, that maybe an allergist might say avoid those. But because you're getting this stimulation of a, a, that, that works in a certain way, and it's not an overstimulation, um, it's a very subtle sort of, I, I think of it as like a background noise uh, that your immune system is dealing with, it never develops, it never becomes sensitized to allergens, right? It never, mm, it never right. sort of mounts that response. It never learns the wrong lessons right. about responding to what are basically harmless proteins in the environment. Yeah. Um, you know, I always thought about this too. I said, well, what do you do with somebody who lives in, you know, in like, let's say in, in New York city and they, they're allergic and they don't want their kids to be allergic Do they, when they're, you know, before their kids are born or after the kids are born, do they go to the zoo each weekend and hang out or, you know, well, I think, zoo? I mean, yeah. Would, no, that theory, the same or is that, uh, I think it has to be much more, more chronic. It has to be more chronic than that. I think it has to be constant exposure. So like you're getting it almost all the time. And there's, so there's research that's not in the book because it came out later on the Amish in, uh, mm. in the United States. So what was interesting about the Amish is they come from the same part of the world as, as sort of like mid, 
German-speaking Europe, right? Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and so they're genetically very similar. So they did these comparison studies, and oh, the Amish were even less allergic than the kids who grew up on farms. And they have these old-fashioned wow. you know, farms where the right. barns, the barns are right near wow. the houses. And it's mm-hmm. and so like they they're looking at, well, how are micros blowing in from the barns of their houses? And I should say, mm-hmm. this has nothing to do with how how clean your house looks right you can't right. see this stuff right, right. The Amish have these like spotless houses i actually visited one you know the, it's part of their mm. sort of yeah. ethos right right everything sure organized everything is spotless mm-hmm. um but yet they're apparently getting this sort of microbial exposure i mean they're always working in the barns they actually go in the barn the barn is definitely full of just you know a, a jungle of microbes um so anyway, I, I think the overriding theme is interesting. We'll get into this even more too. It seems like, I guess, the closer you are to nature, probably the healthier your immune system. I mean, that's, I guess, right? Would you agree? I mean, that, you know. Well, I wish it were that simple. The problem yeah. is, remember the original study in, in Switzerland, there was kids in the same rural areas. They were okay. also exposed to like the fields and the trees and this and that. But apparently it wasn't enough to make a difference. They didn't really, there weren't any, uh, any less allergic than the kids in the cities. What really made the difference was this sort of um, microbiome diversity, the microbiome well, diversity. Going from like an open field, I mean, mm-hmm. the open field is probably good for you, um, but going from an open field into this sort of intense exposure of a barn where there's, oh, I see, right. Where, mm-hmm. where there is, um, there's fermented feed. They, you know, they mm. ferment the feed to preserve it for the winter. Right. Um, and there's mud everywhere. I mean, it is like this microbial just yeah, diversity. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, yeah, we're going to get to that because that's what I think. It's going to be so challenging for treatments in the future. How do, you, how do you package that into a pill? You know, there were other things, though, early on that were very confusing. You know, like, you know, David Strachan's work, which you mentioned about the, you know, of, you know, uh, larger families that, you know, where, um, you know, children have older siblings seem to have less allergies. Yeah. Uh, you know, and so for a while, that was like, oh, you know, it's interesting because the Western societies do have less children probably than underdeveloped countries. Um, and even a comparison between families that had more kids. I mean, we're seeing this now. It's crazy with RSV, as we just started talking before we started uh, taping, that, you know, again, maybe when you're less exposed, less immunity builds up early on. And now that's why we're seeing this wave of RSV, you know, know, sort of a little bit post the COVID uh, pandemic intensity. But um, I don't know. Do you think that held up really about the whole thing with the older siblings? You know, yeah, you I, th- those, you know. I think that's been replicated several times. Um, mm-hmm. I, I mean, it's not actually, it doesn't contradict the central idea, which is that when you get a bunch of animals living together, it enriches the microbial milieu around you, right? And the animals in this case is a family <laughs> of humans. Okay. Um, so, so here's another version of that, um, which is also held up. Kids who grow up with dogs have a lower risk of, of allergies. And, and there's some really good research actually here. Yes, um, yeah from a scientist at UCSF, I'm in, I'm in the Bay Area, who has actually like has found the lactobacilli bacteria that the dogs seem to enrich in the house, right? Wow. They actually increase a certain kind of bacteria. She's taken it to mice and, and found that they that it can prevent uh, like their mouse version of, of allergic, you know, hay fever type sort of conditions. Um, so the idea is that the dogs enrich the microbes in your house and they might bring in some very specific mm-hmm. kind of microbes just because dogs always have their face in the dirt in theory is, is the reason. Yeah, um, yeah makes sense. So, so the, the David Strachan work, just to finish that, uh, 
it, it's each younger kid is coming into a social situation that is more crowded, right? Yeah. First kid is there's only two parents. Second kid, there's three people. You know, third kid, there's four people he's coming into. So, so. Well, meaning what though? That he's been, he's getting exposure to more um, infections uh, because the other kids are there. And, you know, so he's just getting a little stronger. It's almost like when the studies about the daycare, like by Fernando Martinez, like, you know, I mean, this is, this is, this is so interesting because, you know, I know like in the areas where I live, like, you know, a lot of times parents think, oh, I don't want my kid going to daycare, you know, all all the germs passing around there. And ironically, you know, yeah. these kids are the ones that tend to not get asthma and they're healthier. So, you know, get them into daycare. <laughs> right. Well, I, I don't think that the the supposition that it was actually infections, like viral infections that was protecting them is actually held up. I don't, I don't think no? that that's what okay. it is. So that one. So what was it about the early, about going to daycare, though, that I it's thought microbial enrichment? I mean, so like everything is sort of shifted to like uh, the idea that if you're in daycare, you're getting a more enriched microbiome. The okay. microbiome being, I mean, microbiome obviously in the technical definition would include everything. But what okay. we're talking about are the commensals that live in your, in your, on and in your body, right? That aren't making you sick, but mm-hmm. they are interacting with your immune system. So yeah. if you're exposed to a greater number of people, you're in theory expo- when you're young and a number of kids and kids are slobbering all over everything. Right, and, I guess that's oh, right, right. So there's microbes everywhere. You are more likely, in theory, to pick up a greater diversity of microbes. And that diversity is somehow in ways that we haven't quite totally um, understood beneficial for immune system. Mm. You know, sometimes you always, uh, you know, you always wonder, too, if there's an evolutionary benefit, you know, in the case of allergies. You know, I, I sometimes because people would used to always ask me in my practice, they go, um, they would say something to the effect of, you know, why are there allergies? I mean, it's such a, you know, the, my, the broad, uh, you know, the broad, you know, question. And I thought about it a lot. And then one time I came across an article, it was kind of interesting. It was a story about a, a zookeeper and he, you know, he worked at the zoo and he used to go in and he had to clean the different cages. And when he used to have to go in and clean the lion's cage, of course, when they got the lion out of there, <laughs> um, he used to sneeze and wheeze, whatever. It was like he, he couldn't do his job. And he went to see an allergist. Now, we don't have lion uh, tests. You know, there's no, uh, uh, as you know, it's the, in the feline. So he was tested for the different allergens and he was positive to cat dander, you know, which explained uh, his reactions to going that lion cage. And I thought about it for a little while. And I think somebody else had mentioned this. It wasn't my brilliant idea that, you know, maybe there's an evolutionary benefit. Like maybe back in the day, if we were, you know, you were in the, you know, whatever, the savanna or any other place and your nose would pick up, it would start to itch or sneeze a little bit. Uh-huh. You know, it gave you a little bit of an evolutionary advantage, you know, over. That's interesting, Gary. Right? I mean, you never heard that one, right? You, you I haven't, no. So I was just thinking about that, but. Um, no, I mean, it. That may be the case if it worked like very specifically in the past, but like the levels of allergy in modern populations. Yeah, well, now it's just because are misery. debilitating. <laughs> I mean, there's no, no advantage to. Yeah. Let me ask you also a converse of this because this this also again back in the day, you know, when we talk about all this, you know, because there was you know there was like this movement of you know eat dirt, you know, like dirt is good for you, and uh, <laughs> I think people took that to an extreme. And then I would think about you know when I think about dirt, I think about dust. And, you know, we know dust mites cause asthma. I mean, that's been fairly well proven in, again, you know, uh, in inner cities. And in fact, like in Harlem, where I teach in New York City at one of the medical schools, 
I mean, the, the asthma rates were like off the charts. So does that go against, again, the whole idea about less hygienic conditions are beneficial, you know, or is it just that's because, again, we're in an urban city, not obviously in a barn, you know, all bets are off kind of thing? Uh, no. Well, so the thing about dust mites uh, is that there's some research where, like I sort of alluded to it earlier, that if you you can be exposed to high dust mites, but if you're also exposed to the correct microbiome or in a microbiome, you know, environmental microbiome that is the kind that will train your immune system away from allergies, then you will not become as sensitized to dust mites. So the question then is, is this a question? Is this an issue of being exposed to a potential allergen, the dust mites, or is it an issue of something missing from the environment mm. that is allowing my immune system to start going haywire? And that's okay. the way I, I, I look at it. Yeah. Um, like some of these, some of these uh, farming kids are exposed to astronomical levels of dust mites. They don't develop allergies to them. Um, mm. There was actually one study, and I can't remember the author. He was at Columbia, who looked at this question in the inner city. In, in New York. And okay. what he found was that there was an inverse correlation with microbial load in the house dust so that they were less likely to wheeze if there was a higher number of microbes in the house dust. That, that's a study I haven't read in a long time. But so in other words, the relationship- no, I remember that one. I remember, I remember what you're talking about. You're right. You're right. Mm -hmm. That relationship yeah. held even in the inner city. Yeah. Um, that being said, it's, I don't, you know- <clears throat> I don't think that, like, when we talk about hygiene, um, I think we should really talk about what we're talking about. Uh, and, and really what we're talking about is the correct microbiome. There's one that prevents allergies, right? Right. And not just use the general term hygiene, which can include cockroaches and, right. you know, right. rat feces and all this stuff, which, which you're right, has not been shown to be very good for you. Um, right. when you're exposed to high levels of that. But uh, for me, the question is always like, well, in past environments, when there was actually a lot more of this stuff around, why were we even less allergic to it? Yeah. Yeah. That's, we're moving on right on to that now, because you, I, I wanted to, for the listeners not to get uh, too overwhelmed at first, because it's, it's fascinating, again, what's in your book. And, you know, again, the title tells it all, an, an epidemic of absence. And so I want to get to the next topic about uh, worms. Now, when I did medical training, just I like to share this with the audience once in a while, you know, when we, we used to have to learn a lot of what they call heuristic, like rules of thumb, you know, because when you're, you know, you have a lot of information, you need like something to hold on to. And, you know, when you get a case, so typically if a patient, and it would be interesting, if a patient, like we were doing a workup, and did blood testing, and they had what's called a high eosinophil count, which is, uh, it's one of the white blood cells, as you know. And when that's high, there's a couple, of, there's a lot of different interesting diseases that could be presenting. I mean, it could be very mild form of allergies. Um, it could be due to parasites, or it could be due to, uh, unfortunately, like a, a cancer, like a like a Hodgkin's lymphoma. So we used to have the the, the rule of thumb saying, you know, worms, wheezes, and weird diseases. Whenever we saw a high <laughs> eosinophil count. Yeah. Now, typically, though, when a doctor tells a patient, you know, when they're checking them out if they happen to see a high eosinophil count, or again, let's say they're having a lot of diarrhea, they say, I think we need to check you for parasites. And then the person starts thinking, whoa this is bad for my health. I mean, this is dangerous. I got parasites. Who's got parasites unless you live in Africa? 
But you, like all great writers in the book, draw us in immediately when you self-infected yourself with, I believe it was hookworms in Mexico. I mean, I know my heart, my heart started racing. Like, is he going to finish the book, you know, you know, to help with your condition? So it seems like a crazy experiment. And again, as I said at the beginning of the show, this is not, uh, we do not give any personal advice. This is for yeah. educational only, but please explain to the listeners, because I think this is such an important theme in your book about the beneficial evidence of worms, which are essentially cohabitating uh, in our system that actually has a protective effect against, I guess it's been shown inflammatory bowel disease and other autoimmune diseases. Yeah, well, so uh, I don't recommend that people necessarily go do do what I did. I, right. I One thing that happens when you're a science writer is you learn about the biology of something and you get so fascinated by the biology of it is that you lose your fear. Yeah. You lose mm-hmm. your, you know, you're like, you no longer think of it as the way you would, uh, as you like a lay, a lay person. Like, this, yeah. yeah, I know, you get sucked in. <laughs> and so part of what, so the argument is that parasites, intestinal parasites, that are, certain intestinal parasites that are co-evolved with your species, this is important because it's not going to help if we get like a parasite that's meant for a seal. In fact, those are very dangerous, right? There's, um, mm. I forget what that's called. There's, uh, the seal worm outbreaks happen in, in, in Japan and people die from them. Um, what, what from, from, eat, from eating the seal that has, has like the worm? I, I think it's or? from the sushi. Uh, from sushi, sushi, right. Yeah. Um, have happened, I should say, in the past. It has happened. I don't think it's like an mm-hmm. ongoing thing. And there are like dog hookworm outbreaks in Australia that have happened. And those, they're not going to be there by once. They have to be co evolved for your species. We are Homo sapiens. So they have to be evolved for us. Um, so the, the idea is that these co-evolved parasites have been with us for so long and they have been an always present sort of, and to survive in your body, they have to turn down your immune system a little bit. Mm-hmm. So they, they live for years in your body. And, and to do that, they have to do a trick, which is they manipulate your immune system sort of to be able to put on like a cloaking device so that you can't kick them out. Okay. Um, and in doing that, they change how your immune system works. And so if your immune system has evolved with this constant tweaking of basically turning it down, turning your immune system down, um, then like the question is, would it not come to expect to be turned down, right? Your immune system, does it not need to be turned down by something? Mm. Like in other words, now in our modern environment where we don't have these little critters constantly turning our immune system down, is our immune system in overdrive a little bit, just a right. little bit, you know? Right. Like if you think of it as an idle speed in your car, like is is the gas just slightly pressed more than it needs to be pressed, right? Um, so that was the theory. I, you know, and it's it's backed up by tons of animal studies and it's backed up by observations of people living in pre-modern conditions that pretty much are universally parasitized. Um, it's backed up in lots of different ways. Um, and so my the reason I did that, it was I was like, okay, if I'm going to make this argument, first of all, I want to see... Um, the main reason I wanted I wanted to do that is to see what it felt like, like because so many people were telling me, "Oh, it's not a big deal," you know, like parasites are everywhere. You pe- animals live with them; they don't even notice them. People live with them; they don't even notice them. I had horrible symptoms. It's got to yeah, tell no, you. to me, I can tell you as a doctor, you know, the cases I've read and you know, occasionally cases I've seen, it always scared me. I mean, you know, it's like. You know, um, patients would get really sick. I mean, you know, I mean, when these things burrow in and do their thing into into your body, you know, it's, I don't know. And it just it kind of grosses people out. <laughs> yeah, no, it's gross to think about as a layperson, as a, as a biologist. It's yeah. actually, you're like, wow, how, yeah. how does it know how to do that? How can yeah. it take these migrations through your body? And like, yeah. it's kind of your, it's amazing. 
But so that's a theory. And I wanted to test the idea that it was really not a big deal. And I found it to be kind of a big deal, personally. Yeah. All right. I'm glad you're um, mentioning that because, I, again, as I said, we don't want anybody running off to Tijuana and, and doing this. I mean, this, I mean, hopefully this is going to be the, 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 the nidus for other therapies that are going to make sense. It's almost yes. like, you know, I did, I did a podcast of two of them, in fact, on fecal transplantation, which I don't know if I have time to talk about, but, you know, it's essentially on that same kind of thinking, you know, and obviously it's very gross to most people, but if someone's got a severe colitis, like Clostridium difficile. Yeah. It's life-saving. Right, and, right. Yeah. And, and but there are doctors that are doing it under very relatively good conditions, you know, controlled. So, you know, we can, you know, kind of harness this therapy versus, you know, you know, with all the other potential things that can happen when you infect, you know, infect yourself, because you don't know how your particular immune system is going to react. Like, as you yeah. said, because you didn't grow up with that's exactly right. Terms, I didn't we're trying to introduce yeah. it. No, really, as a therapeutic. Yeah. Yeah. Right. So, okay. Um, but you did, I mean, again, in your book and everything, there's quite a lot of, uh, I guess, is it more case studies or there was, some, uh, there was some actual, like, I don't know if you could do double blind, but like, cause you mentioned Dr. Weinstock's work, you know, about really yeah. some remissions in severe Crohn's and, and so, other right. things. He actually studied this in a rigorous uh, way, and he saw benefit in people with Crohn's and colitis, two different mm -hmm. studies. Then after the book came out, they uh, tried to study it in an even more rigorous way, and it failed. Um, okay. And so but there's lots of behind-the-scenes finger-pointing about that trial, like the company that was manufacturing these little tiny um, – they were whipworms that were native to pigs, right? Mm -hmm. But so the idea is that th in this case, you want a species that is not native to humans because you don't want it to reach sexual reproduction in the human body so that it starts infecting other people, even though mm. I don't know how that would happen if you poop in a toilet because that, that's yeah. it has to like go through, you know, there has to be feces around in the environment basically. Mm -hmm. um, but so anyways, they, they had changed the formulation just before. I mean, these are, this is all just rumor, but they had changed the formula, you know, so they didn't design it right. Or, you know, mm -hmm. it depends who you talk to. So there's a lot right. of recrimination about how that study, how they could have gotten such good results in the early studies and they didn't in the later studies. Um, it could just be, it doesn't work. You know, that happens all the mm -hmm. time when you mm -hmm. take the, when you, as you move up the sort of chain to be, make an actual drug, the early stuff looks really good. There's smaller studies, the bigger, the bigger studies later don't. Happens all the time. I know it's crazy, um, even with the placebo effect, and I, and I hate to like you know minimize something, but placebo effect is very powerful. I mean, God, God knows, there's been a lot of studies on that. Even though you say, well, how you know you're introducing an organism, but anyway, it's yeah, it's. Uh, but yeah, what, could, I mean, what I you know, it's also that they had chosen maybe some really severe case. You know, there's mm -hmm, a bunch, there's a bunch mm -hmm. of different ways to do the yeah. trial, but <laughs> I think that that treatment, that specific uh, formulation of the treatment, is probably dead now. But mm. what has happened is that there is this explosion of an underground <laughs> of people doing it. Mm. And, and these anecdotes keep emerging of people sending their – and this is not at all scientific. Uh, you know, and, yeah. and you, But it's like uh, I wish that – I hope that they continue to study it because I think right. there's something there. Yeah. Um, you know, and so, but the other thing is that maybe the theory really predicts that if you grow up, with constant exposure to these, you will never develop these diseases. It doesn't necessarily predict that if you already have these diseases, you can stop the disease by putting a parasite in. Right. right? Well, yeah, I'm going to get to that later because it kind of work that I do because, you know, yes, I mean, we're going to get to how do we help patients, you know, besides just all of the 
essentially the epidemiology and the underlying causality for this. You know, you mentioned also in the book too, which I, I found very interesting. And, and again, I think so important, you know, about motherhood. You know, we all agree that genetics, heredity, DNA are important factors in our health. I mean, it's the other, it's the other half, I think, of the equation. And, and we do know now, fortunately, from current research that our environment is probably about equally as important. So you're not fully destined to whatever you're in, in you know, a lot of cases, what your genetics, you know, um, provide for you. Um, and probably no environment is more important than the mother's womb. And, and that being said, in utero is a key time in a fetus's life with ramifications for later on. So what I want to just discuss a little bit is some of the research you present. And I know from what I've read, like some of the best indicators, you know, again, practical, maybe even, you know, when it's possible, you know, for um, expectant mothers to avoid allergies and autoimmune diseases in their children. Uh, and I'm talking about things like, you know, C-section versus vaginal delivery, breastfeeding versus formula feeding. Yeah. And probably the biggest one, which I want to get to, you know, I'm just throwing this out, you know, uh, antibiotics, if they're given in utero, because I've seen tremendous amount of cases where unfortunately a mom got, had a urinary infection or something, got antibiotics in the pregnancy. And then, if, you know, she has three children, the one that she had the antibiotics in pregnancy developed all these multiple food allergies. So. Huh. Yeah, anyway, that was that, that's some of the things that I've been seeing. Again, it's anecdotal, but uh, just something I've been noticing. But we know about the C-section versus vaginal. That's a, a very interesting one. Yeah, well, the theory in there there is uh, that you are not exposed to your mother's vaginal microbiome because you've been taken out of the, directly out of the tummy. Yeah, um, you know, via uh, incision. Um, and so, but there's an easy workaround, which I think some places are. They're doing now. A, yeah. a studying, but also B just doing. I yeah. think sort of uh, well, as a preventive, which is to swab the kid and the mother's. Right. What I've been species. hearing, it's interesting now. But but the only thing I try to get through my head though is that you know when you think about the delivery, I mean it's obviously a window of time. You know whether it's you know a couple of hours or twenty four hours till the baby comes out. You know depending on it was the first you know delivery or other ones. But it's such a short period of time considered the whole con compared to the whole pregnancy. And, uh, and like you mentioned, yes, what they're doing now, because they, I mean, it does make sense. I mean, when the baby's going through the canal, they're getting all the different microbes. So now apparently what I understand is they take like a, like a, obviously some kind of cloth and swab the, the mother's vaginal area. And then they put it into the child's mouth and they, they, they swipe over their whole body. I mean, that's what I know some places are doing. Whether that's holding up, I don't know. <laughs> well, they have to study and see if it has, yeah. makes any long-term difference. Yeah. Uh, you know, there are lots there's of There's no other harm. Things. Let's put that way. There's no harm. So that's, you know. Well, I think it also matters what's in your mother's microbiome. Yeah. Uh, you know, if she no. has some horrible infectious organism that could, you know, which well, they that's usually, true. that's why they sometimes prescribe antibiotics, right, to, to the mothers. I mean. Yeah. Like there, there's there's always going to be a sort of uh, a pro and con to these things. And that's why I think it's hard to say, like, to, to recommend don't ever give antibiotics. I don't think that's that's actually accurate because then what well, what are you using the antibiotics for? If you're using them to treat something that's potentially more dangerous. No, I'm not disagreeing. Right? No, I'm not saying. No, I, I don't mean you personally, yeah. but I mean just like it's out there. No, I, I, I didn't agree with you. I mean, you have to use, you know, you have to use obviously something that's going to protect the mother and the baby, you know, but it's just, you know, again, if it's possible to hold off or, you know, I mean, as you know, too, the, you know, one of the things that really caught my attention in, in the allergy literature was that, you know, children, if they even had a, a few courses of antibiotics, were more likely to get asthma 
later yeah, on. Yeah, I know. It's so, very worrisome. I, and yeah, and that's what I'm, we're going to get into the next thing because it's really about, you know, how do we have the healthiest microbiome? I mean, again, I you know, some people, you know, get the big lottery win with the, uh, you know, they just fortunately are born with excellent microbiome. Other children, maybe not as much. But I think there are a lot of, you know, you know you're talking about all these cohabitating, like, you know, the worms and other things and growing up in, you know, in, um, you know, in farm areas. But, you know, our own environment does have a lot of things to some degree that can definitely affect our microbiome. I, I think about this a lot, you know, soaps that have all these antimicrobial chemicals in them. Uh, and obviously all the cleaning materials that we use in a home, that type of thing. Um, and, and of course, as we were just talking about is antibiotics. I mean, it's just, again, the frequent use, this changes the microbiome dramatically. I mean, I see these cases all the time with what's called candida overgrowth and, uh, and yeah. other issues. So I don't know, what's your thoughts about that? I mean, do you think that's been overstated or do you think, uh, I mean, even with diet, you know, you know, people obviously are running to get organic foods because they don't want the foods, you know, treated with pesticides and, um, and of course, unfortunately, and you mentioned this in the book, and, and I remember reading about this in the New Yorker 20 years ago. It just didn't even make, I didn't even know this went on, that, you know, obviously they were feeding the, you know, the animals, you know, antibiotics to help yeah, them yeah. grow. Yeah. You know, so these are profound influences on our microbiome. Yeah, I, I again, I, I, you know, I'm not an MD, so in terms yeah. of, of, uh, like saying we shouldn't be using so many antibiotics. It depends on the individual case. Right, um, what, right. what I do know is that there is now a movement, mostly not because they care about the the, the microbiome. Well, actually, I should correct that. It, well, I think a lot, yeah, yeah, they're worried yeah. about resistance. They're worried about it's dangerous. Death, yeah, right? it's dangerous. Yeah. So there is a movement in many places. They're saying maybe we should not prescribe antibodies so liberally. Yeah. Um, and I think that's good, right? Like, like right, before, there was, there was basically no sense that there was any cost to antibiotics. But now, what's what's happening is that there is there's a sense that there is a cost. There's because you know cost. why? It's so it's so funny. Everything is in a name, and I thought about this because eventually, if they do come up with something like you were talking about, this microbiome pill or whatever, too, it's all in yeah. the name. Because antibiotics has such a amazing like back in the day. You know, like this is the healthiest, safest thing for you. I mean, if we called it right, right. mycotoxin. Uh, formulation, <laughs> which is because we know the original antibiotics and a lot of them do come from molds. Uh, right. I don't think it would people be so quick to say, oh, I'm going to pop some microbiome, uh, mycotoxin uh, pills right yeah. now because I have a sore throat. Yeah, um, I mean, I, so I, I I wonder like how much of the antibiotic usage you can just get away with by using them more judiciously, right? Yeah. Well, yes, um, that makes sense. And, you know, but, and being careful, you know, I have to just mention this as, as a doctor, like I'm very nervous and I rarely prescribe any of the really stronger antibiotics such as, you know, the uh, fluoroquinones, you know, which like ciprofloxacin. Yeah, or, yeah. I mean, they've been shown to cause so many problems. They're so powerful. And you know, what happens in medicine, and this even happened, you know, it really comes full circle with the microbiome with the acid blocking drugs, you know, like the Nexiums right. and the Prilosex. You know, when I was in medical school, I was talking to somebody about this. I remember distinctly we were in pharmacology and we were learning about different medicines to protect the stomach, you know, and the they had what they call the H2 blockers, like the ranitidines and I forgot which other ones they were, you know, which were supposedly like a step way above, you know, the Tums, the calcium blockers. And then they started talking about, they're working on this thing called a proton pump blocker, uh -huh. but it was for only at the time, people that had a, a disease called Zollinger-Ellison, which is where you have tumors in the pancreas 
that are just secreting enormous amounts huh. of uh, acid, causing these major ulcers. And it was also like for a limited time, you know? And then later on, I get into practice and they come out with the proton pump inhibitors. I mean, this is like, you know, you're talking about like seven, eight years later. So like, you know, yeah. some, I, mean, I remember this now. And now it's like, okay, you have reflux, here, take this. Not, not just for two weeks, you need to be on it for life. Yeah. You, know, be, you know, and then it just shuts down the acidic production in their stomach and other bad things happen. So anyway. well, they, what's interesting about those PPIs is that they, they actually, they, they make you addicted to them. You can't get yes, off them. I know. The rebound, because the they rebound. get a rebound of acid production. I, I, you know, I, have a whole, <laughs> I have a whole method that I do with patients where I literally have them alternate day dosing and I use baking soda. Yeah. I, mean, I use a lot of tricks to get them off because I think they are way overused and yeah like as you mentioned they become addictive and uh and then also my patients you know you get a lot of mineral and vitamin deficiencies because your stomach was made to be an acidic environment right. that's right. the one area where that that's important um but before we ask, move on yeah. though can I, yeah. about the antibiotics one thing i wish would happen because we're going to need to use antibiotics they're uh, part of, of the armament right yeah so one thing i wish would happen would be like would be some way to repopulate your microbiome after a course of antibiotics, Absolutely. possibly possibly with your own microbiome, so that if you know you have to take a course of antibiotics, you get it, you get some, you you store basically some of your own microbes, which is feces, and you have you get it in the right formulation, and then you repopulate yourself with those microbes after you've done the course, so that you know you have a, don't have lasting damage. That is something like like that would happen. Well, that you know, it's so funny. As I said, I was going to say that for the end, in a sense, but that is the holy grail of medicine. You know, coming up with a pill that has this microbiome that's beneficial. You know, absolutely, when you've been on antibiotics, even for maybe a lot of other medical conditions. You know, just as an aside too, I, I keep again thinking about this. I think with the CRISPR technology, which is being done out in your neck of the woods, you know. Jennifer Dudner, who I'd love to get on the podcast one day. Um, I think the CRISPR technology is going to take over for the antibiotics because CRISPR huh. essentially is the immune, you know, is like the, you know, the way to, um, you know, to break up bacteria or viruses. You know, it's it can be an amazing tool, and I think I think that's the, that's good news for us because I, I again I don't know what the long term consequences of those kind of therapies will be, but but that could be the next generation of quote antibiotics, but. But for me right now, it's exactly what you said. I'm fascinated with, gosh, what could we come up with, you know, essentially in probiotics? And people love that word, but it's been such a disappointment because, you know, people ask me again also all the time I practice, Dr. Mitchell, what's the best probiotic to take? Right. And I say, I got to tell you, it's the Wild West right now. Nobody knows anything. Does it work? Does it not work? Is it safe? Is it not safe? We really don't know. I mean, I, and I, I hope and I think there are people working on that. You know, yeah, I hope so too. I mean, one of the things that's been frustrating about writing about this field is how nothing basically has come of anything, and that know. book is 10 years old. I know, I know. Right? I, I thought by the time you know, we'd be talking about it now that you'd be on your second book saying the microbiome, evo you know, revolution or something, yeah. You know? I mean, I should amend that. The, the the fecal transplant stuff has been very important. Yeah, that's for, exciting, for, but it's still very. I mean, they're coming up with, yeah, and they're using it for other things too. I mean, as you know, I mean, I I actually the one chapter in your book I didn't have a chance. I was reading like fiendishly to, to get ready for this interview was the autism area. But yeah, um, but, you know, there are people talk about you know it sounds see it sounds so bizarre. I, I guess this is the other big point for the listeners to comprehend. You know, when I first, and I always tell patients this every day in my practice, when I started uh, in my training in immunology 30 years ago, you know, we were taught, and it was the AIDS epidemic back then, and, uh, and I worked with immune deficient kids. I mean, it was all about, 
your immune cells, essentially from your bone marrow and your thymus. You know, that's where your B cells come from, your T cells come from your thymus. And it really, I give so much credit to the functional holistic medical community because they were the one kept on saying the gut, the gut, the gut's everything. Mm. And, you know, everybody else was looking like, what are you talking about? But, you know, now we really do know that, you know, the the microbiome in the gut is probably where 70% of the immune system, you know, is coming from and where it's that interaction with our environment. And that's what we have to master. How do we get that as healthy as possible? And I hate to say this, but I find my patients tend to be more knowledgeable than everyday physicians on this. They're, you know, and- uh, Well, eating a good, eating a good diet is the easiest way for people to sort of- Right. 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 And what I mean by good is high plant material, high fiber. Yes, yes. No question. Um, Because that feeds the microbes and there's good research on that sort of allowing the, the microbes that are the most healthful to, to bloom and thrive in your that's gut. That's true. That's true. You know, again, what could hold us back, and that's what I'm worried about. I'm interested in your take on this. You know, it seems like the medical profession, uh, maybe I'll toss in what I do, but the medical profession, and when I say that also the pharmaceutical industry, are quite set on continuing to make what's called monoclonal antibody treatments or biologics to suppress the immune system in autoimmune diseases, and even now in allergic conditions, conditions like hives, sinusitis, and asthma. Do you think we're heading in the wrong direction? Um, you know, again, from based on some of your work. I mean, I know you're not a doctor, but I mean, as, a, yeah. as, an, as an observer, because I, I tend to tell my patients, I'll, I'll give you, a, I'm, I'm rambling on a little bit, but you know, when I see patients, I'll give you, for example, with allergic asthma, and I find out what they're allergic to. Now, sometimes, again, they could go to another doctor who'll say, oh, you should go on this biologic Zolaire or this newer ones like Dupixin. Suppresses the eosinophils, suppresses this, suppresses that. Also can make you a little bit more prone to infections, potentially cancers. I don't want to overstate that, but that's been mentioned before. I instead say, okay, look, and this is what I talked about in my book, The Allergy and Asthma Solution. I said, I'm going to desensitize you. I'm going to try yeah. to switch your immune system back in balance. I do it with sublingual drops, which I think are much safer than injections. And I'll target your allergens, whether you're allergic to cats, dog dander. I can be very specific. And we start to do that. And the patients start to find that, you know, they get more in balance. They don't need their inhalers as much anymore. You know, as I mentioned, now I'm doing that for foods. So I don't know. Do you have any thoughts, you know, as an observer of what, where this is all going? Right. Well, I think at the, in general, the more stuff there is in the armamentarium, the more sort of tools there are, uh, the better off, hopefully, we will be. And that's my general sense, because I know that there are people who don't respond to anything. Right. right. And then right. suddenly they'll take a biologic, the, the last biologic on the sort of algorithm, and then suddenly finally respond to something. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, that could be the difference between like feeling like living death and, and True. feeling like you actually have a life. So right. those people need help. And yes. I think there should be medicines that can help them. Like some of these biologics, I know they help some people. Yes, um, they do. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Uh, that being said, I, I, I do wish. So, so great. So let the pharmaceutical industry pursue that. Do their um, thing. Right. But it shouldn't come at the cost of this other approach. Well, well who's going to pursue that? Who's going to, you know, because right. you know, it, I know, to get, I know. To, get our, to get our, whatever our formulation is, our special microbiome diverse probiotic, who's going to fund that? It's going to have to be, well, you know, it's, a pharmaceutical uh, company because, you know, you get to get it through the FDA and da, 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 you know, it's. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I think you know. part of the issue with with living things that you're using as medicine is that you, it's hard to standardize. Yes. 
which is yes. of course what drug what drugs are supposed to be the same quantity the same right. does the same right. thing you know every pill right. um so it's hard to standardize and i i think that's a i feel like that's a problem that could be worked out but there is this this movement i sense mm. away from using the actual microbes and trying to figure out what they're secreting or, or what what uh sort of yeah. molecules they're using to interact with the immune system and just bottle those those things is that is that going to work i don't know I don't know either. You know, I find also it's funny. You just said something really interesting because, like, when I do my desensitizations with patients, that's why no pharmaceutical company can really match this because, you know, I'm setting a dose for a patient based right. on their testing, what I think is appropriate. I move it up, and it's, it's a very um, specific therapy per patient. You know, yeah. it's not you know one one you know one allergy drop fits all type of uh, you know treatment. So interesting. Well, so I I, I recently called NIH. Uh, was talking to someone there and said, basically, like, what's going on? Why is there no, no movement on this? And his response was, we are wondering the same thing. Really? Yeah. Well, you always got to follow the money. <laughs> well, no, he was saying, like, look, we just don't even get that many proposals for stuff with the microbiome. We haven't gotten them recently. Really? Really? Um, and his take was, I don't think that the scientists have identified the microbes that are the that they think are the right ones. In other words, the science mm. has not progressed to the level that it needs to be. Yeah. Well, you have to have that curious mind. You know, one of the things that I always think about a lot too, and it took me years till it really kind of got into my head. And again, it goes back to this whole thing with the gut. Like, you know, when I see patients, especially women with urinary tract infections, for example, what the most common organism is E. coli. Okay. Now mm. we have E. coli in our gut. And yeah. it, you know, unless it's a toxic strain, it's supposed to be there. It's fine. But I think also when bacteria get to the wrong place, because a lot of times it actually, believe it, right. seeds out of the bowel to the urinary area somehow, that that's when the problem begins. And I think that's what happens in a lot in our body. When the, when a bacteria gets to the wrong place that it shouldn't be, you know, like say when, when certain bacteria that are in the stomach, for example, if somebody uh, at what they call aspirates, where they, they you know, kind of right. the, the juices come back up against the lung. I remember as a doctor in the hospital, those were the most dangerous pneumonias. Because that bacteria, you know, we have bacteria in our lungs that we like commensal that we just live with. But when the wrong bacteria get to the wrong spot, even in our own body, sure. that's where trouble trouble happens. Right. Like it's like I wouldn't take like my feces and rub it in a wound, right? Under exactly. Arm, even if it's your feces. <laughs> right. <laughs> Good point. <laughs> um, all right. The last area I just want to touch on a little bit because I find it fascinating and it does affect another area of my clinical practice. Um, is about Epstein-Barr infections and multiple sclerosis. I'm still just a little confused, uh, but I, I think I, I was, I'm getting there, understanding it. You know, almost everybody that I see in my practice has been exposed to Epstein-Barr because when we check titers, you know, for various reasons, yeah. some of it not that useful, but we check, people ask. You know, pretty much everybody has what we call IgG to Epstein-Barr virus. They've been exposed. Occasionally, I will run across a patient that I'm seeing in a subacute stage where they've had recent mononucleosis, you know, typically the college kids. Um, you mentioned in the book, it's very interesting that the problem may be not so much about getting the Epstein-Barr virus, but when we get it. Yeah. You were, you were saying something right. about like if, if children were to get it earlier, then they wouldn't potentially have this higher risk, for example, of multiple sclerosis later on. So could you yeah. elaborate on that? Yeah, I mean, so there's lots of research, uh, epidemiological research showing a, a correlation between mononucleosis, which is 
basically this just illness you get when you get Epstein-Barr that can last for months, right? It's right. The, the kissing disease as the teens at some In point college, yeah, right. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, the, mod- the risk of mononucleosis goes up the later you get Epstein-Barr. If, I don't think that if you get it as a young kid, you don't necessarily, your risk of mononucleosis, mononucleosis is not as high. So the theory is um, it's, it's spread by saliva, right? And the theory is that in the past, kids would have got it like basically right when they started eating food, possibly, because they would have been, their mothers would have been chewing food for them and giving it to them, like right. pre-masticating. Oh, you know, right, right, this right. is like in some, uh, you know, version of our, of our pre-modern past. Yes, yes. Okay. Where we weren't scared about, you know, chewing food with someone else. Um, and so they would have gotten it, you know, around whenever they weaned, basically. So very early in life. And, um, and, and then they would have just had it the rest of their lives. It goes, do, it, it goes and hides out in your, in your, uh, where is it? Your nerve cells or something. Uh, I don't remember exactly. But, they, but these very young kids wouldn't get like the, a full blown mono picture. No, no, like, absolutely not. They would just get it like, you, you know, they'd be like maybe a, a little bit achy or something yeah. for a day. And then that would, that would be it. Mm-hmm. Then the later you get it, the less prepared in a way your immune system is to receive it. And it gets unbalanced by mm-hmm. receiving it at a later age because mm-hmm. the immune system sort of changes uh, as you mature. Yeah. And it, um, and so uh, the idea is that somehow when you get it later, it unbalances your immune system in a way that can cause your immune system to attack yourself mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, and attack the myelin in, in your in your nervous system, which leads to to uh, multiple sclerosis, which Christina right. Applegate was just just revealed that she was diagnosed with. Um, this actress, Christina Applegate. Oh, oh right. Yeah, sure. Oh, my gosh. Um, yeah. I think she had cancer also, like breast cancer. Did she? I think she did. Yeah, it's funny. I just, yeah. But so there's definitely this correlation between sort of societies that are um, less hygiene, hygienic, I guess. I mean, there has been in the past. It's now, but in other words, like the first places with high rates of of MS were in Northern Europe and not Southern Europe. And then Southern Europe started catching up and then, and then not, and then they thought that Africans never got it. And then Africans started getting it, you know, it's like, so it definitely correlates with the level of development of affluence. Well, does it, does it correlate also with, because I was saying, I mean, if you take like a hundred people that came to my office or whatever too, 98 of them would have Epstein-Barr titers. Now, a lot of them never had a, you know, a, a yeah. cute, you know, like a, uh, you know, a clear cut um, clinical, picture of mononucleosis with the swollen glands or whatever it is to the ones that that go on to get ms do they typically have a, a, a like a, a you know overt case of uh infectious mono or does it matter i mean because as i said it's so prevalent in the yeah you know, in the well, population i think, um, I think the studies correlate it with mono because you okay. can't really like you said lots of people get it and don't feel anything right okay. so they have to look for some marker of when you might have gotten it mm. and that marker is usually mono um, but yeah, my understanding is that basically by our mid thirties, almost everyone has it. Yeah, I, I mean, this rarely I could ever. I, I don't think I've ever. I really don't think I've seen a case where I've checked for Epstein Barr titers in patients because I see a lot of chronic fatigue patients also. Yeah, and they always want to be checked for that. I don't think I've never ever seen anyone who's had like one of IgG, which shows your long term antibodies to Epstein Barr, that someone's had absent. You know, right. those titers. So right, so like there's this it's this interesting question there, whereas. Um, there's this germ theory of disease, which is that a germ causes a disease. And it's very important to the, to the history of medicine, obviously, in the late 19th century. Oh. Um, but what if there are other, like, it can lead us astray if we're always looking for, like, okay, I have the virus, I must have the disease. Mm. What if everyone has the virus? 
by 30. And the question is not having the virus. The question is when you got the virus, which right. is what, you know, how you started this out with. Yeah. And, I, and so there's a lot of research on that with Epstein-Barr, that basically it's, if you get it earlier, you're safer, you're, you're better off. And if you get it later, it becomes more and more dangerous to you. Yeah. I guess one other thing I want to touch on, because I think it's important for the listeners, is your the work that you discussed about H. pylori, because that also is such a confusing thing. To, I think even doctors, you know, again, we see somebody's got stomach pain, I test them, you know, either they do a breath test or there's blood testing and they're positive for H. pylori. Ah, you need course of antibiotics and you know, some, uh, you know, some type of acid blockers, you know, and then we'll cure you of uh, your, you know, peptic ulcer condition. And what you mentioned, which is really mind twisting, and I I read it somewhere else too. Oh, I know where Martin Blazer's work. Yeah, um, he's the know, H. pylori guy. Yeah, I know. I was trying to get him on too, but he's kind of, uh, he went AWOL. Um, but yeah, like he talked about how it's so fascinating that, you know, that, Children, at least in certain societies, seem to have H. pylori very young. Oh, no, no. The, yeah, the, yeah, societies where the H. pylori is normal to have, even when you're young, the fact that our populations don't have it when we're young, and then if you get it later on, that becomes pathological. Is that, yeah, yeah. am I saying that correctly? Yeah, yeah. It's, it's, it's very similar to, it's to like Epstein Bar. Um, yeah. So, like, there's really nice uh, animal research showing that if the younger the mice get it, the more they tolerate it and the less, the fewer problems it causes for them. Mm-hmm. And they get it later and later, it becomes more and more sort of antagonistic with their mm-hmm. immune system. Yeah. So it's like, you need to lock in these kind of, these are, these are, I think the term that Blazer uses is, is pathobiont. They're, they're, mm-hmm. um, they are microbes that can be good or bad. Okay. Um, and they live in your body. And some of the research, like uh, this animal research I was just referring to, the earlier you get it, the more that they are the biont, right? <laughs> the, the good. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, biont is not really good. The, 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 good, the more that they're just, they just sit there and they do things that aren't uh, dangerous to your body. Yeah. You know, it's funny because, you know, the, I'm blanking on his name right now, the, you know, the, the um, Australian that got the Nobel Prize, you know, for discovering yeah. H. pylori causes ulcers. I forgot his name. Names Is it Warren, what was his name? Uh, that was he was the yeah he was Warren was the uh, the Lee was the like the mentor and the other guy that actually well, I'm thinking about the guy that swallowed the H pylori spit yeah. stuff from <laughs> and then scoped himself or something. Barry Marshall, Barry Marshall, Mar- yeah, Barry Marshall, right? You know, I mean, you know, he essentially got the Nobel Prize for being an experiment of one. You know, <laughs> yeah. right? No one believed him. I mean, that's why yeah. he, he did it. Yeah, I mean, it was. It sounds like back in the old days, you know, and. Doctors would, I guess, I don't know if they would always do it to themselves. They'd probably take their trusted assistant. And say, yeah, okay, right. You're going to be the guinea pig to get the uh, or, the vaccine. Or even in the older days, they just take a uh, like a prisoner or something. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's not even funny. Um, anyway, this this has been so much fun for me. I hope my listeners really appreciate the type of discussion we've had today on autoimmunity and allergy. It's just so thought provoking in so many ways. Uh, Moises, where can my listeners find out more about what you're up to? I'm interested in what you're up to since, you know, I know occasionally I'll see articles. I think even with COVID, you publish, I see things appear in the New York Magazine or New York Times. Yeah, New York Times. Where, where, where's your uh, work um, appearing? And do you have anything in the, anything on the fire that you're working on? Uh, mostly the New York Times Magazine these days. Um, there's, yeah, I have an article. It's not related to medicine coming out about uh, farm, a farming movement in Puerto Rico that's oh, coming out in like a week or two. Okay. Uh, it's a, and other stuff. I have a, there's other stuff coming in online. I mean, you could just, 
I unfortunately have not been updating my website, but my website <laughs> is one way that you can follow me. It's just MoisesVM.com. Okay. Um, Right. Right. So yeah, I need to, to I need to keep it updated. More. Yeah, you should because uh, you know when you know it's it's funny. It's like even I just got my New Yorker magazine the other day, and I loved when I read with Malcolm Gladwell and uh, Jerome Groupman and yeah, Atul Gawande. You know, and a lot of them I think are not writing for there anymore because either it doesn't pay that great or I think I, from what I heard also with New Yorker articles, like it could take sometimes up to a year till they publish it because they do so much editing. You know, yeah. So, uh, you know, I mean, good writing. I don't know. There's nothing like it, you know. And uh, so, you know, it's funny because last week I had on from the uh, from the Bay Area, I had Joe DeRisi. You know, he's in charge of the Chan Zuckerberg Biohub. And he was written in Michael Lewis's book, The Premonition. Uh -huh. about, you know, he was he helped, you know, with the whole COVID epidemic, identifying the viruses and getting testing done and stuff. And uh and I always say, Michael Lewis, I think they, the way they say about his writing, because if he wrote a book about the history of the typewriter, people would read it. You know, Yeah, well, he's a very he's, he, very compelling writer. He is. So anyway, thank you so much, Moises. This was terrific. Yeah, um, thank you for having me.